Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. I'm Tyler Tischlar at Superior Book Promotions, filling in for Reader Views with Irene Watson. And I'm Victor Volkman with Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 111 in our series. Tonight's topic will be Making the Perfect Pitch, How to Catch a Literary Agent's Eye, and our special guest will be Catherine Sands. You can learn more about all of our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear your questions and comments about tonight's show. Please send them to info at authorsaccess.com. Now, tonight we are on the line with Catherine Sands, who is a literary agent with the Sarah Jane Fryman Literary Agency in New York. Catherine has worked with a varied list of authors who have produced a diverse array of books. I can only list a few of these titles, but I'll give you some of them as a representation. Playwright Robert Patrick's novel, Temple Slave, a complete book on international adoption, a step-by-step guide to finding your child, Hands Off My Belly, the Pregnant Woman's Survival Guide to Myths, Mothers, and Moods, the Gay Vacation Guide, City Tripping, a guide for foodies, fashionistas, and the generally style-obsessed. Taxpertise, Dirty Little Secrets the IRS Doesn't Want You to Know. Divorce After 50, and The Safe and Sane Guide to Teenage Plastic Surgery. Now, her new book, Making the Perfect Pitch, How to Catch a Literary Agent's Eye, is a collection of pitching wisdom from leading literary agents. Actively building her client list, She likes books that have a clear benefit for readers' lives in such categories as food, travel, lifestyle, home arts, beauty, wisdom, relationships, and so on. For memoir and femoir, she likes to be transported to a world newly or rarely observed. Well, good evening, Catherine. Good evening, Victor, and good evening, Tyler. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. And I know we have lots of listeners who are looking to find literary agents. So let's just start out right away with, um, I understand that what's most important is coming up with the pitch for your book. So could you just explain what exactly is pitching? Pitching, or pitchcraft as I like to call it, is the writing that you do about your writing and the speaking that you do about your writing which is every bit as important as the writing because it's the step that most writers hate or like to neglect because they presume that agents and editors will read their work, will commune with their work, and then render an opinion, ideally an opinion to take them on and publish them. But that's really not how it works because of the way the industry is structured and the sheer volume of people who are basically applying. We look at a pitch and the crafting of the pitch to make the determination of whether or not we're even going to read page one or five pages, let alone an entire novel or a book proposal. So practicing pitchcraft is a vital, vital aspect of a writer's life today. And in terms of contacting literary agents, a pitch letter is called a query letter for anybody very new, and uh, it is a one-page audition. It's a one-page job interview, and there are things that work and things that really don't work. Um, what I call the querial killers, and that is, those are the series of mistakes that writers make when they set out to woo and win literary agents. 
Can, can you tell us what a few of those are? Like, well, how about some uh, what not to do in your in your query letter? Ah, the nots to do. <laughs> well, so many people waste their first paragraph. Remember, you've only got a page. We make the decision in the one page, one email page or snail mail page, of whether or not there is something there that goes pop, that jumps off that page, that might uh, pique our interest in some way. And the industry-wide belief rightly or wrongly, is that the letter would pique your interest in some way. It's the audition, as I, I say. It's, um, it's so much about getting somebody to pay attention. So one of the query killers is to ignore the first paragraph and to concentrate on the most uninteresting aspects of the work, like the word count or the processes or to be too businessy or to make genuine errors like, sending to every agent in agent kind in the subject line or writing dear sir <laughs> or um, something unprofessional like that can really get you dinged and right into the circular file, as we would call it. Um, Catherine, in the, in the list of books that Victor read, um, I think they were all nonfiction. So is there, is there something about the, about the pitch in terms of fiction versus nonfiction that people should keep in mind? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, for example, just took on a fiction author, um, a, even though we're not supposed to say fiction novel, by the way, that's another querial killer. I fell madly in love with her pitch. What worked? She had a killer premise, something very fresh and different and unique that popped, that just jumped off the page. And her writing had three elements that I look for, that all agents look for in terms of fiction pitchcraft. And I would call this formula place, person, pivot. First, you must introduce setting. Donald Moss, by the way, in his excellent book, Writing the Breakout Novel, and in my book, which is actually coming back to press, it's not a new book, I put it together a few years ago, but he speaks of this formula as being setting protagonist problem. You first want to establish the story universe, the world, the setting. Then, secondly, you must introduce us to a character or a cast of characters or to you if it's a memoir, it, something that gives us a thumbnail sketch. And then pivot is a dynamic moment that the storytelling will begin with. And people really make a mistake when they don't showcase those three elements. We can only understand elements. We're looking for spark. We're looking to connect with your work. We're not able to compass how many sequels, you know, and how what an 800-page opus might do. We can only focus on those three elements initially. Yes, that's that's really fascinating. Um, so this is a lot different than a, a plot summary, right? Because uh, I've seen authors, I've tried to help authors struggling turning plot summaries into queries. Well, it, it is different because, remember, we haven't invested in any way. So the plot doesn't mean anything. Um, the theme rarely illustrates a pitch. So we don't need certain kinds of textures and certain kinds of information. We need a reason to keep reading. In our minds are two questions, why you and why now? And uh, a perfect pitch answers those questions with something that captivates you um, just enough. And remember, in terms of your protagonist, we don't know if we're looking at a story about poodles or octogenarians or people from another planet. We need to get a visual, what I would call in a class, the takeaway. 
And the takeaway is something that four hours later I could tell you, you told me about your story or your characters, something that would be memorable and somewhat quirky or different or fresh or unique or engaging, something that would stay with me. Great, and yeah. From my point of view as an agent, those are the kinds of things I would need to understand in order to discuss your work with an editor. Absolutely, I can see that. Now, how about uh, some of the, the nonfiction books, like, uh, for example, uh, let's just talk about uh, city tripping. How would you write the uh, pitch, the query pitch for that one? Well, that was a great discovery story, by the way. I met a young college student who was um, next to, seated at a table full of college students next to me and two editors. We were actually all at a drag review show in New York. <laughs> and he overheard us and heard we were in publishing and said his dream was to write, could he send material? I said yes, assuming, as I usually do, that I'm not going to be delighted and surprised and overwhelmed by the talent that I will read in that letter. And sure enough, that is not what happened. He was fantastic. Um, one of the things he did, his name is Tom Dolby. He's gone on to quite a good career. Um, he really understood his topic. That was basically New York under 30. And he asked questions, simple questions. Where do you go for sushi at 4 a.m.? Um, and he made simple points that people who are experiencing New York who are under 30 have different needs from guidebooks. They're not looking for tourist trap eateries and places to bring the kids. So you have something as simple as a question or as simple as one observation, and uh, the query letter does its job. It gets a yes. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, how does the... Uh query letter relate to the platform? Do I have to, to sell my platform as well, or, or give us a primer on that? Well, I always tell writers to eliminate the word sell because it always makes writers upset. They don't have to think about selling their work or selling themselves, and think about the word share because that's what you want to do. You're sharing your work, and um, in terms of the platform, you're not so much selling it as you're basically making a very clear case for publication. You're arguing your case. And part of the way we argue the case today is through the platform, which affects everything. It affects the yes. It affects the kind of printing you would receive. It affects the kind of advance monies a publisher might offer. And the reason for this is platform is numeric. It has to do with your outreach, your visibility, what you are likely to leverage today in terms of social media, which is an explosive subject right now, as you probably know. It's all about how you would succeed as an author. Um, an important point I like to make is that your query letter is not the beginning of your book. It is the introduction to your potential in terms of how you would succeed as an author. So the platform points that you would share, not sell, but share, are the way you get people to understand you. And, for example, if Tyler and I were speaking, if someone such as Tyler had a terrific regional appeal and ways of leveraging other kinds of organizations, newsletters, events, things that we call the platform today, it's not just you. On the one hand, platform might be print and broadcast media, things that showcase you personally, but it's also true that your platform is your region, it's your subject, 
for example, if your novel deals with breast cancer or if your nonfiction memoir deals with caring for a loved one through an illness or, or something terrible, um, a life challenge, that whole community is also part of the platform because that community is where your book would be visible, ideally embraced, ideally interviews with you or interviews you could conduct even would be part of your book's platform, even if it's a novel, so that if the novel deals with breast cancer, everywhere breast cancer subjects are discussed is part of your platform. All those blogs, there are 80 million blogs today, every kind of, of topic, every kind of illness, every kind of interest, every hobby, there's something out there that, that uh, addresses it. So the fact that your platform might showcase that community, but also your connection to that community. Um, and today we're seeing so much success, so much author-driven success coming from this. So yes, you would include that in your query letter, ideally to show someone who might not even know how popular a subject is or how wide-reaching a need is. Um, using statistics or demographics can really impress agents and editors because they don't always know how many people might have an interest in something or a need for something or what a gap in a market might be. Wow, Catherine, that's that's a lot of information I, and all good. I, I never thought of the, the the query letter so much as selling the author, but it, it makes total sense to me. Um, oh, as so, I say, writers hate query letters. They hate the whole <laughs> idea, <laughs> but they shouldn't because it's so useful and important and unavoidable, <laughs> but also it can be a very positive thing. So when the uh, what what when you get a query letter that you think is is good can can you kind of walk us through what the what the next steps are what the relationship becomes between an agent and an author um, do you like do you coach the author through writing a proposal for a publisher or do, I guess just what happens once the query letter is accepted well the, when the query letter is accepted, it means that the agent has contacted the author, maybe a phone call, maybe an email, to request more information. We don't generally just go from query to signed client. We would then ask material for material. Um, in the event of a nonfiction book, and if we're working with a work of nonfiction, probably today we would play a pretty detailed, um, we would pay a lot of attention to that material and we would be very detailed in our editing of that proposal. Today we are acquisitions editors ourselves because the way the publishers make decisions is so, so scrupulous and so committee-based at the larger houses that we can't really show up with a good idea and some good writing. We've got to bring in a pretty developed business plan and a very polished work, which means we're either rolling up our sleeves and working with the authors directly, which many agents do today, or we might even suggest that a nonfiction author invest their own money in hiring a professional proposal developer or editorial writer, certainly with a doctor or, God forbid, a celebrity or musician. <laughs> we're going to do that because we're not going to get a result otherwise. Um, so, yes, we would spend a lot of time. Some of the most exciting moments for me as an agent have been developmental, you know, to sit with a chef in the kitchen and help develop the vision for a book. It's wonderful for me in my working life. Um, I love that. I just sold a book um, with a leading dominatrix here in New York City. I, I uh, met her through a class I had given 
I don't really know dominatrixes generally, <laughs> I feel compelled to say. And uh, I just loved what she had to say. And it's now resulted in a book um, contract that it will be pu- for a book that will be published next year called Whip, A Professional Dominatrix, The Secrets for Wrapping Men Around Your Little Finger. <laughs> and that's not something that would necessarily show up in the mail <laughs> and, and be recognized. So um, I love the developmental aspects. Many agents do, but beyond that, they are necessary. And today we, we might take a strong role in... Uh, in developing fiction as well, simply because we get a yes or a no just the way a writer does. A publishing house is unlikely to want to see three more drafts or to take an interest in substantively talking about work that they haven't contracted. So we might say, um, wow, I really love your work, but it's a little uneven in this way, or the male characters could be more developed or something like that. Obviously, we're not there to tell the writers what to think or what to write, but we are there to say, here's what I think will happen. If um, if you don't correct this or if we don't go, uh, you know, if we don't produce more work or a, a better result um, will happen if we do. So if an agent's interested, they are going to contact you and they will have both a strategy and a prognosis. Um, strategy is here's what I think we should do. It is probably not let's go to editors tomorrow. It probably is let's go to the drawing board and see what we can do with your material. And then uh, prognosis is here's what I think will happen if we X, Y will happen. I mean, it's somewhat formulaic in that way. An agent always has a very strong idea of how they'll market a work and what is likely to happen to that work because uh, it's always important to remind writers we agents are not funded in any way. Mm-hmm. We are not for hire. So we have to get it right or else. Well, that that actually makes me feel very good, Catherine, because it, it just kind of takes <laughs> away a lot of the mystique of it, and it, it makes me feel like, you know, your, your agent really is part of the project and concerned about it. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about, in terms of once you agree and you, you start, um, trying to um, sell the book to an editor to a publisher, um, like is is there a can you tell us about like is there a contract between the author and the agent? How long do you agree to try to sell the book? Um, how how often does the book actually get sold to a publisher, or how many authors you know and agents part ways without having success? Those those kinds of things. Phew. Okay. Well, here comes the word selling. Obviously, comes into this, but. In my mind, I, it's also finding a work a good home. I'm looking for an enthusiastic home for a project um, more than anything else. And the home can be about money, but sometimes that's not the upfront money that you're excited about. Sometimes a small press or a niche press or an academic press, a press that isn't going to give the most money, might be the best choice for the book, the best home for the book. So you're looking for the best match. You're the liaison between the author and the publisher, and you're looking for both sides to be happy with each other. Even though you're there to be an advocate for the author, you're also mindful of the publisher's needs as well. And you have to represent honestly for those reasons, and also you want to sell them multiple books. So you're looking for the match, and you're looking for the placement. When you start working with an author, 
you might work with a contract or you might work with a handshake. Obviously, once there are emails and so on, you are very much established as the agent. An author agreement is pretty detailed. Um, an agency author agreement talks about different things like um, whether you would work for one year or six months or any number of um, time considerations. It addresses many things. It's unlikely to be produced for a first-timer. Why is that? Because I'm totally protected if I work with a first-time author. Uh, there's no way they can cheat me, you know, in front of a publisher. So I might be very casual, and I might also say, look, this is risky. I'm willing to do it. Um, I believe there's potential here, but um, we can work without a letter of agreement. If I'm working with a rock band or uh, somebody who has previously published books or has a very established product line or something more complex, I'm not going to be that casual. As for timing, it's never that much of an issue because I've sold things on the 33rd try, all agents have. We can't really be aware of how many things work or don't work easily because I might be trying to sell something month after month. So I might believe that it's just a question of the right confluence, the right editor becoming excited at the right time. I might be willing to keep going. Um, or an author might pull the plug and say, I don't think this is working for me. But I'm unlikely to pull the plug once I get started. If 25 people say no, you're, you might want to hear their feedback to see why you hear the same feedback again and again. But frankly, I've had that happen and still sold the work in the end and just believed that they were all wrong. <laughs> you know, I've had that experience quite a few times now where they don't get it or they're too afraid of it and they're, the wrong, they're not right <laughs> in declining the work. Do, do you have many cases where an author um, say that you are successful in selling or, or finding a home for their first book and they then have a second book? Is it pretty typical that the same agent will represent them for the second book? And what about if, say, the first book was nonfiction, the second book is a mystery? Does that make a difference? Well, it, that's changed quite a bit in, the, in recent years as well. It used to be that agents tried to get authors to commit to them for every work and possibly sign them that way. And these days it's very, very lax because if someone is writing, you know, crossing genres or doing a cookbook, even though they've established themselves as a mystery writer, they might really want one or two, you know, a second agent simply because a children's book agent might be more effective for a children's book. So often agents co-agent today or are happy to say, look, you're welcome to work with another agent um, on this project or in that direction, and we'll still work on your, you know, genre fiction. That's very typical today, um, you know, much more easy to do than, much more amicable than it was in the past where people were represented by one agent only. And... Um, Certainly, like any marriage, uh, there are divorces. There's honeymoon, and there's strong marriages, and then there might be divorce. Um, there's no real statistic. Um, I hear all kinds of stories. In terms of first and second books, you certainly do see the see people become successful on a first book and look to go to bigger agency names or you know more complicated agents um, agreements. It, it does happen that way. 
I always tell writers, you're looking for an agent who's somewhere in their career that, in the way that would match up with you as a writer. Because the agency president who's doing seven-figure deals is really not the best choice for a first-time novelist, probably. They're not going to give them attention. They probably wouldn't take them anyway. And they're probably, even if, you know, going to form them to junior associates. And that's not always the best plan. So, um, you're looking for an agent who is somewhere in the food chain that, in a way that matches you. And sometimes that means that if somebody were to have a bestseller, they need a more complicated agency. They need one with many moving parts, maybe a media division and maybe um, an international rights department, and they don't necessarily need this when they first need someone who can just get your first chapter read. Great. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk for a minute because a lot of our listeners uh, have self-published at least one book or something. Uh, is that uh, the poison pill or are there benefits to to self-publishing before you uh, have approached an agent? Well, I love that. Poison pill. <laughs> well, it used to be a poison pill and that has changed dramatically. Um, I'm of two minds on self-publishing. On the one hand, if you have a means of promoting your book and selling your book, such as a website or activities or a pretty developed platform. You know, it could be a restaurant. It could be you're active or teaching. You have the opportunity for back-of-the-room sales or you've done a memoir and there are many organizations that would host you and you can do back-of-the-room sales that way. In those kinds of instances, a self-published book can do very well. You can start getting attention, media, sales, and at that point, if you've sold 4,000 books, you might look very interesting to a literary agent. Fiction's a little more tricky for a number of reasons, um, but again, if there's something of interest in the work that might bring a regional audience in or perhaps a military audience, and there are many ways people make these work, and there are great success stories Richard Evans was a self-published author. He did the Christmas box for his family, and he started marketing it a little bit to his Mormon community, and the word of mouth was so powerful that the book sold and sold and sold. Barnes & Noble took it on, and then Simon & Schuster paid over $4 million for the rights to publish it. So there are legendary stories like that as well. Mostly what happens, though, is that when a literary agent sees a self-published work and it says 2007, that looks very old to me. I will have an automatic pop-up thought that says, wow, this author um, probably was declined by many people and that's why they self-published. Whether or not that's true, we tend to think that. We also tend to think maybe the author is extremely difficult to work with because they wanted their own work to be a certain way and they're not going to want to work with an editor in a publishing house. That does occur to us. Also then, the track record, the actual numbers, tell a story. Rightly or wrongly, we believe that story is how the book will, will do, how the title will perform. So if something happens, it's exciting, and today it really can. Social media, twittering, these kinds of things can really move a self-published book. So it's changed very much. But I sometimes like to say to people, when we see self-publishing, it's almost like if you meet a man and he's been divorced three times, 
he might be a great guy, but you just can't shake that feeling that he's been divorced three times. <laughs> like, what's the story here? What went wrong? It's that kind of feeling when we see self-publishing. But it is changing. It is changing very, very much. Great. Yeah, I get a lot of people uh, pitching their self-published books that feel that maybe they would get a better break if they had a, you know, a more conventional publisher behind it. And I have the same, same, you know, red flags come up that that you just mentioned. Let's talk uh, a little bit about what it means to become a full-time nonfiction author. I know you've uh, thought that through quite a bit. Now. Oh, I, I should have thought it through more before I became one. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very different <laughs> from what I think people think it will be. <laughs> you know, you're effectively asking for votes, I like to say. You're, you're practically running for office <laughs> when you're out selling your nonfiction book. <laughs> but um, but <laughs> I'm more than happy to talk about it. What um, when you say developing as a nonfiction author, today everything is about the platform. Everything is about, you know, the author building their own voice in the, um, you know, in the Internet world and, and the one-to-one relationships that social media gives them is, is just ideal for this. But publishers are so different. They're giant corporations. They're looking for people who can do the job of author. And that means to really, really know how to market themselves and to want to reach their readers in many, many ways, many of them unknown to the publisher um, in terms of the newsletters, catalogs, ways of being in a community. Um, the publisher may not even know how to reach the special sales potential. They want authors who know how to find their readers more than ever before. So um, someone who would build a nonfiction platform wants to know that. What works is people who are passionate about their subject, are deeply involved in some kind of community, and then the book is an outgrowth of both the need to be what I call an impassioned ambassador, somebody who just cannot get this information to as many people as, as they can. They live for it. They're walking the talk, and the book is an outgrowth uh, in a nonfiction book. Great. Uh, Tyler, do you have any uh, any final questions before we wrap up? Um, I, I guess, uh, Catherine, just to kind of round things out, can you tell us a little bit about how being a literary agent has changed in the last few years, um, like, say, in the last two, three years even? Oh, it's dizzying. <laughs> just dizzying how the changes are very linked to the new technologies, how today uh, you see agents blogging and twittering and promoting books that way and becoming tweet hearts, as I'm told it's called. Um, it's just so different, and the role of an agent has evolved. I spoke a little bit about the editorial aspects of that, but... Um, you know, it used to be that an agent's job was to sit in an office, read something, and the singular event of a contract was the agent's job, to match the author to the publisher. And today, we might take on all kinds of roles in the author's life, um, from editorial, but more and more, you see agents calling their businesses media management, because we're also there to further their relationships with 
talent divisions and uh, product lines and all the other things that a book would be used for. Essentially, a book is becoming the puzzle piece of somebody's other kind of brand and business often. And this is as true for literary fiction as anything else. So media management being coming something of a literary manager is um, is certainly a big change in the role of a literary agent. Um, we're always sourcing talent, though. We are always looking for new new voices. Sometimes it's simple. Sometimes it isn't all about hullabaloo and um, bells and whistles. Uh, it can just be about talent or a great story or um, something we haven't seen before. But um, it's not the same business. Uh, we also have less personal one-to-one uh, -one selling than ever before. It used to be that an agent and an editor had a long-term relationship or else nobody could even see their work read properly in a publishing house. But um, today, I've sold books to people I've never met by authors I've never spoken to, <laughs> all because it's done virtually. I mean, we have virtual offices today. That was certainly a big change. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Uh, before we close, we just need to uh, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. You can give us your websites and your Twitter handles and anything else you care to. Oh, well, let me end with one of my favorite stories then. Um, I have a client I'm, who is actually based outside Chicago, and her story, I think, illustrates quite a bit. Her name is Barbara Barnett, and she fell in love with the TV show House, which started some years ago, and she started to blog about the show. And her blog is called Welcome to the End of the Thought Process, an Introspective Look at House MD. Her blogging grew in popularity, as did the show. The show became the most watched show on the planet, and her blog, the best-read blog on the show. The writers on the actual show House read her. <laughs> and she has had now access to the cast and the design departments and the writer's room and all kinds of things. This is one writer in Chicago. Agents from New York and California courted her. Her book is being published in September. I'm her proud, proud agent. And what I love about this story is it just comes back to the talent and the passion of a writer. One writer actually commands this much attention and interest and success because of her delightful, special, interesting, insightful writing. So uh, I think that's an important story and certainly one of the best I've ever been part of. And my contact info is K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E-S-A-N-D-S at nyc.rr.com, and the agency is actually Sarah Jane Fryman. Okay, great. On behalf of uh, Tyler and myself and Irene, who couldn't make it tonight, we do appreciate your spending a few minutes with us. And this has been another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. We'll be back next time when our topic will be Creating Book Video Trailers with Kim McDougall. You can learn more about all of our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. For Superior Book Promotions, this is Tyler Tischler in Marquette, Michigan. For Loving Healing Press, this is Victor Volkman in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
wishing you all a good evening.